Thank you, Amanda. Thank you, team. Thank you, Kyle. Hey, we are going to continue our worship through giving. And so if you look to your left, you will find offering baskets at the end of each row. If you'll pass those along, Anesha will come down and pick those up in just a moment. And again, it is good to see everyone today. Uh, hey, as you are passing those offering basket, I wanted to let you know uh, about something that is going to be coming up uh, in a couple months and so that we can all be prepared for it. Uh, some of you guys may remember this, uh, but about two and a half years ago, uh, the elders awarded me a sabbatical. Uh, now, if you are not familiar with that term or that is new for you, a sabbatical uh, is kind of a, it's a unique experience where you take some extended time away uh, for a couple different reasons. Uh, one is just rest uh, and just to have some extended time to be able to kind of decompress and rest uh, from a long season in ministry. The other goal uh, is really for future planning, to have some extended time away from all of the daily things that have to get done every single week to really look towards the future, to be able to study and prepare. Some people use it to write books, uh, but it's really a, a time to really kind of look forward and to be able to vision and have some extended time uh, to do so. Uh, and so we had that planned. Uh, it was awarded two and a half years ago, and it was supposed to start in April of 2020. Um, and about a week before my sabbatical started, the world locked down. Uh, and so clearly that didn't happen. Uh, and for the past two years, we have been surviving and getting through all the craziness, but uh, the elders have now agreed to actually reschedule my sabbatical. Uh, and so I'm finally going to be able to try this Again, so pray for me, if you will, about that. Uh, it is scheduled for right after Easter uh, for six weeks, uh, so really the end of April and all of May. Uh, and guys, I gotta be honest, I'm very much looking forward to this. Uh, on the one hand, I, I am really looking forward to the rest. Uh, it has been uh, a, a fantastic uh, decade. Uh, it's been awesome. Uh, it, it has also been tiring. Uh, and quite honestly, my, my soul is just a little bit weary, uh, and especially after these last two years of what we've all been through. So I'm absolutely looking forward to the rest, um, but I'm also looking forward to the future. I am excited about what the Lord is doing here at Double Oak. I am really excited about the next decade of ministry here at Double Oak Community Church, and I'm excited to be able to go talk to some different people, really be able to plan and prepare as we look forward into the future. Uh, but look, this is going to be exciting for you you as well. We'll have some of our own staff who will be preaching. We'll also be bringing in some other speakers, just like we did last week, and some special guests to kind of be with us through that time. We'll be doing some special things, and so it'll be a special season for all of us. But I just wanted you to go ahead and put that on your calendar, though, to be expecting it. This will be happening in two months, uh, right after Easter for about six weeks, and then I'll be back uh, starting in June as we roll through. So I hope that you'll be praying for me about that. I am praying for us about that, uh, but I'm also very excited about that. So be praying if you will. But now grab your Bibles. Let's go to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 verse 5 is where we're going to be this morning. Romans chapter 8 verse 5 as we begin a brand new sermon series entitled The Repenters. Romans chapter 8 verse 5 is where we'll be in just a moment. Hopefully you've got a copy of God's Word, if not a device that you can look that up on. Romans chapter 8 verse 5 is where we'll begin in just a moment. This morning, I'm going to make you angry. Now, that is not something I do lightly. Uh, in fact, it's something I do with a little bit of trepidation. 
when I grew up, I used to watch this TV show where the main character would say this. I think it was in the opening credits, but he would say, don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. Anybody remember that line? It was spoken by Dr. Bruce Banner. And way before Mark Ruffalo picked up the role in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, it was played by Bill Bixby in a show entitled The Incredible Hulk, right? Yeah, this is the live action version, right, where Bill Bixby played Dr. Bruce Banner, and then the Hulk was played by this bodybuilder, Lou Ferrigno, because this was way before CGI, where you could have like a big actual thing. But Bruce Banner has a problem. Uh, he was exposed to gamma rays, and so now, whenever he gets angry, whenever he gets stressed, whenever he gets frustrated, he turns into a large, hulking, green monster. It's terrifying, because he knows this is going to happen. This is why he tells people, don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry, because when he gets angry, he cannot control the Hulk. He cannot control what the Hulk does, and the Hulk smashes. The Hulk destroys. The Hulk does all kinds of destructive things, and Bruce knows he does not have control over it. But whenever he finally comes down, he turns back into himself, but he lives in constant fear because he knows what's inside of him. He knows that at any moment, if he gets out of sorts, that this thing could come out. Now, we all know about the Hulk, not just because of the Marvel movies, but because this was a character that was introduced back in the 1960s. And here we are, 60 years later, still talking about him. He's an enduring, iconic character. Why? Because we can all, in some way, can relate, can we not? Because whether we like it or not, we all, in some ways, recognize that there's something in us we're a little bit afraid of. There are feelings and desires that are inside of us that we worry if those got out of control, if those got out of hand, we know that it would destroy us. And sadly, some of you know that from firsthand knowledge, or you've watched it happen to people that on the outside look like mild-mannered people and then made conscious choices that destroyed their lives, that hurt themselves and hurt the people that were around them. So for just a moment, I want you to put yourself in Bruce Banner's shoes and ask yourself, what would you do if you knew you had the Hulk living inside of you? What would you do if you knew you had that danger lurking inside of you? And that's actually closer to home than any of us wants to admit. And so we're gonna spend a season really learning how to deal with that. For well over a millennia, Christians have really talked about their enemies in the world in three different ways. There are three main enemies that we all face as Christians uh, living through our time on earth. The first one is the devil. We talked about this last year when we talked about spiritual warfare in our sermon series called The Good Fight. It's been a whole season recognizing that the devil is actually real. We do have spiritual adversaries. We live in the midst of spiritual warfare, whether we like it or not. You don't get to opt out from that. We live there. There are actual demonic forces that are arrayed against us. And so on the one hand, we face the devil. Another enemy is the world. We talk about the world a lot. The world is the system of values and ideas that has set itself against Christ and his kingdom. 
And we talk a lot about the world. We find ourselves maybe afraid of the world or concerned about the world, the values of the world. And later on this year, we're going to do another whole sermon series really talking about how do we deal with the world? How do we deal with the values of the world that we find ourselves in? And so you have the devil, you have the world, but the third enemy is not as popular. In fact, he's become, it's become even less popular than the devil to talk about. The third enemy is our flesh. The three enemies we face are going to be the devil, the world, and our flesh. Because there are enemies that are not outside of us. There's an enemy that lives inside of us. It is our very flesh. And you and I must, as we walk through this life, not simply fight the devil through spiritual warfare, fight the world as we live in in relationship with Jesus Christ. We also must fight against our own very flesh. So we're going to be opening that up today. That's why we find ourselves in Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 5. Listen to what Paul tells us. It says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And so here you have Paul talking to us about the dangers of our flesh. You see, the flesh that is opposed to the Holy Spirit, it is opposed to God himself. And again, this is not external to us, this is internal to us. And so the first question we need to answer is, is like, what is that? What are we talking about when we say the word flesh? What does the Bible mean when it talks about the flesh? And this is odd because this is something that we instinctively all kind of understand and we all kind of know what we're talking about. When when you get down to actually defining it, it is really not that easy. I cannot tell you the number of definitions that I have found this week from commentators and, and theologians all throughout the ages. It's really hard to pin down. In the Greek, the word for flesh is the word sarx, S-A-R-X, sarx. It means flesh. The problem is it's translated in a ton of different ways. In just one English translation, the English translators used 28 different English words to translate the one Greek word sarx. 28 different words to translate one Greek word. Why in the world would there be that many words, that many meanings? Well, because even for Paul and the rest of the New Testament writers, they use this word in multiple ways. Single words can have multiple meanings, and that's true for this word as well. There are three main ways that the New Testament uses this word, sarks. When they say the word flesh, there's three main ways that they use it. First off, when they say flesh, they mean your Flesh, right? You know, just like your actual flesh and blood, the actual stuff that just makes up a human being. So your flesh, blood, bones, hair, skin, like the actual physical makeup of a human being. Sometimes when it talks about flesh, it just means your flesh and blood. A second way that they use it, though, is to talk about humanity as a whole. When they talk about flesh or all flesh, they really just mean all of humanity, all people. Sometimes they talk about a single people group, this flesh. They just talk about a group of people or all people. So they're not really referencing our physical bodies. They're just talking about humanity as a whole. But by and away, the largest way that the Bible uses this word flesh is to talk about this inclination inside of us that is opposed to God. 
It is an inclination towards sin, a set of desires and thoughts that are in us that are arrayed against the Lord. And we wrestle with trying to kind of really how to, how to nail that down or how to define it, but it's something that we all deal with. This is a part of our fallen human nature, our corrupted human nature that is still left over from before when we were saved that we are still wrestling with as we live in this world. Now, I think it's important for us to understand that when we're talking about flesh there, in this sense, we're not talking about our bodies. Your body is not evil in and of itself. Our physical bodies are not bad. Adam and Eve, before the fall, they had a physical bodies and they were not bad. Jesus Christ comes and lives amongst us. He has a flesh and blood, a physical body, and yet he is sinless, all right? So, so our physical bodies by themselves are not bad. We do not need to be angry at our physical form. The Corinthians got in trouble for this, by the way. Uh, early Greek thought had the idea that all matter was bad and all spirit was good. All right, so anything that was physical was inherently bad, but anything spiritual was inherently good, which got them into weird ways of thinking. The Corinthians actually decided that it would be okay for them to go and sleep with prostitutes, even as believers, because guess what? That was just my body, right? My body is just doing things, right? It's got needs. We try to take care of it, but my spirit belongs to Jesus, right? And so my soul is with Jesus. My body's doing other things. So we're cool, right? Paul says, no, right? Not cool. Cannot do that. You cannot divorce your soul and your physical body. The problem does not exist in our physicality. It is not residing in my flesh, my flesh and blood. It's deeper than that. This is instead something about our situation. This is something about our humanity that we are all wrestling with. But let's get this clear. We all wrestle with this, do we not? This is not a problem for a few of us. This is not a problem for just early or new Christians. Every single believer deals with this war within, this war that is inside of us. And that is why we have to fight against the flesh. Let me show you this in a bunch of different places. Here's Galatians chapter five, verses 16 and 17. Look what it says. Paul says, but I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. All right, so you learn a couple things. Number one, the flesh has desires. That word for, here, keep that up there if you will. That word for desires is actually the word lusts. It's strong desires. All right, so our flesh has these strong, almost overwhelming desires, but they are against the Spirit, so much so that the Spirit is trying to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. There's going to be this desire that seems to be coming from us to do things that are contrary to what the Holy Spirit would want. This is the war that we're all facing. But there's another place that shows us even in more detail what this looks like. Let's go to Romans chapter 7. This is the seminal passage on this struggle that you and I have inside of ourselves. But in Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 14, Paul says this, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. 
So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do the right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Sound familiar to anybody? Uh, Hopefully, this is a familiar passage to many of you. If you've ever found yourself wrestling with this in your soul, you've probably found yourself in Romans chapter 7. Now, I will say, there is a huge debate about this passage. It is raised all throughout the centuries as to whether Paul is talking about his experience before conversion or he's talking about his experience after conversion. And there's just a whole history there. In the first few centuries of the church, they really kind of lean towards this being pre-conversion. But from the reformers onward, uh, it's really been thought that this is more post-conversion because sinners typically don't delight in the law of God in their inner being. Sinners typically don't have the desire to do the right. That, that's not typically their experience. So m- most people today think that, no, 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 he, this is from a regenerate perspective. Paul's talking about something that's in himself. This is how he experiences life as a believer, which ought to be comforting to us, should it not? If you've ever wondered, hey, does anybody else feel like this? Does anybody else have these struggles? Somebody of the caliber of Paul is also feeling the same kind of struggle, He's also wrestling with this, and he's not the only one. Let's look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Look what it says here. Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Every word of that is rich. Here's Peter saying, listen, I, I know what you're feeling. He's talking to believers. You are the exiles, you are the sojourners, but you need to abstain from those lusts of the flesh. Why? Because they war against your soul. I felt that before. You have felt that before. So did Peter and so did Paul. Every believer has to deal with this inner war inside of us. Even though we are in Christ, even though we are in the Lord, we still feel this battle. And this is something we have to fight. We cannot stay here. Paul will say this to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He says, but brothers, I I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk and not solid food, for you weren't ready for it. And even now you're not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh? And behaving only in a human way? For one says, I follow Paul. But another says, I follow Apollos. Are you not being merely human? He knows that these are Christians in chapter one. He calls them saints, and yet he says they are still of the flesh. They are acting in a fleshly manner, and he challenges them. He says, you cannot stay here. You've got to grow up. You cannot keep giving in to that. You need to grow up in your salvation. 
And so look, this ought to be encouraging to us to recognize that you are not alone. You are not the only one wrestling with these desires, these lusts, these, these temptations that don't, aren't coming from the outside, but are coming from the inside. If you've ever felt that fear of that, that hulk of those desires that are in you that you do not like, but they are there nonetheless, well, you're in good company because everybody is right here with you. Everybody in this room is right here with you. But there's a problem because there are other passages in Scripture that use the same term but typically seem to make it sound like we shouldn't be having this kind of battle. And that can lead to a lot of confusion. All right, so let's look a few more. Here's Romans chapter 6, verse 6. Remember, we, we were just in 7. Here's chapter 6. He says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Old self is a euphemism for flesh. To say, listen, it's, it's already been brought to nothing. It's already been crucified. How about this in Galatians 5.24? Again, we were just in Galatians before. Here it is again. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Past tense. We've already crucified it. It's already done. Those passions and desires have already been crucified. Then back to Romans chapter 8, same passage where we started. He says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. All right, so if you are a believer, the Holy Spirit lives in you well, it seems like if that's the case, then I should not be in the flesh. I should be in the spirit instead. And so now we find ourselves confused. But because we read verses like this, and now we begin to, to wonder, okay, well, is what this telling me is, is that I shouldn't have these desires? That if I, I have these desires, that, that something is broken in me? Something is wrong? And, and when we read these passages and try to come to grips with this, it, it can lead to two very difficult places. Number one, you can find yourself buried under a mountain of shame. You can find yourself reading this going, I, I, I don't know if anybody struggles like I do. I, I don't know if anybody has these temptations like I do. I don't know if anybody feels like I do. I, I don't know if any Christian should feel like I do. And we live in constant shame for these feelings, these temptations that seem to come from inside of us. And we live in constant fear that anybody else is going to find out about it. Which is why we all pretty up for Sunday, right? We come in, I'm fine. And we try to pretend for everybody that we're all good, that we don't have these things. We don't want anybody to know that we struggle with these temptations inside of us, but it might even lead you to doubt your own salvation. I'll be honest, I lived here for well over a year early in my faith. As a young minister, I, I watched the Lord do incredible things as, as I preached and I would travel, but I also knew my own sins and struggles and temptations. And verses like this really short-circuited me because I'm going, wait a minute, am I even saved? How can this be that the Lord can move in, in one sense, but I'm still struggling in another sense? Shouldn't this be over? I thought I was set free. I, I thought these, these passions and desires have been crucified to the point where I said, have I just made all this up? Am I even saved at all? It can lead you to a lot of pain and a lot of confusion and a lot of consternation. So how do we deal with all of these verses? How do we deal with what the Bible says as a whole about this struggle with the flesh? 
And the answer is that those, this is a mystery. It's a mystery we're well acquainted with because it's very much akin to our salvation. I want you to think about your salvation for just a moment. For us to be saved as believers, a couple things are happening. On the one hand, we are already saved. But on the other, we're still being saved. On the one hand, we are saved. We are justified by Jesus Christ. We have been accepted into the family of God, forgiven of our sins, not by our own actions, not by our own piety or holiness, but by what we have done, but because of what Jesus Christ has done. His perfection has been given to us. We have been forgiven for all of our sins, past, present, and future, all of them. All of our sins have been forgiven. I am already saved, done deal. I am justified. I am in, sealed in the Holy Spirit. He does not come and go. I am justified in Jesus Christ. That is true. It's over, done deal. But on the other hand, and just as real, I'm still being saved. This is called sanctification, or I am growing in godliness. I am growing in holiness. I am becoming more like Jesus Christ. And that is a process. And that process is ongoing and it will not be finished until Jesus Christ comes back. This entire life that I live in this earth is going to be a life of sanctification. So it's already and not yet. I am saved and I am being saved. Okay, well, the same thing then is true when it comes to our flesh. On the one hand, the flesh has been crucified. We are no longer in slavery to sin. Sin used to have the upper hand. Sin used to have the mastery. But Jesus Christ, by his death on the cross, has crucified the flesh. I have been set free from sin. It is no longer my master. Instead, I serve Jesus Christ. It is over, done. It has no power over me anymore. It has been crucified. But on the other hand, I'm still growing. And we are still dealing with a, a sinful part of ourselves that though it has been dethroned and though it is no longer in control, it is still very loud. Is your flesh loud? Because mine is. It speaks, it yearns, it moves. And we're still wrestling with that. It can't control us anymore. But it absolutely tempts us. It absolutely draws us away from the Lord. Instead of living in a surrendered state to the Holy Spirit, we always have this nagging desire to live on our own again. To say, no, I make the rules. I decide what I do. Nobody tells me what to do. I don't want to trust Jesus Christ. I want to trust myself. And that's still happening. And so that's how you make sense of these things. Both of these things are happening at the same time. Now then, that helps us actually understand, okay, then what are we talking about? When we're talking about our flesh, we are talking about this fallen part of our human nature that still draws us away towards sin whose inclination is not towards the Lord and towards the Spirit, but instead is towards sin, you can describe it in a lot of different ways. You can talk about the old man. You can, you can talk it about uh, our fallen nature. You can talk about a corrupted nature. P.S., when I was growing up, I, I learned to call this the sinful nature. If you grew up reading the NIV, that's, what they, that's how they translated the word flesh. They translated it sinful nature. 
that's really not as helpful of a term because I don't have a sin nature anymore in Jesus Christ, uh, which is why in 2011, they actually changed it. And if you read an NIV today, it actually just says flesh and not sin nature. But I grew up before that, right? And so I, that's what I heard. And so it actually got me a little bit confused for a while. Uh, but when we're talking about our flesh, we're talking about this part of our fallen human nature whose desire is against the spirit and that draws us away towards temptation. And so do you see the fight? Do you see the war that you and I have to wage? We're not simply fighting the devil and the world. We have to fight our very flesh. We have to resist our very flesh. To which some of us might ask, do we have to? Because that sounds like a lot of work. It really does. And I am saved, right? I mean, you're telling me I'm not going to hell, right? Correct. So, so, I mean, look, at the end of the day, I will go to heaven. He's already forgiven me, correct? Yes. That is absolutely true. So do I really need to fight this sin in my life? Because, I mean, look, if it's all going to work out in the end, surely I'm fine, right? No, you're not. Go back to the passage we started at. Let's go look back again at Romans chapter 8, starting at verse 5. And I want you to look at a life that has lived in the flesh. I want you to look at what happens even for believers who live their lives in the flesh. Let's read it again. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Why must we fight against our flesh? Because when you and I fail to surrender to the Spirit, when we fail to walk in step with the Spirit, surrendering to Jesus Christ, the result is death. Are you gonna lose your salvation? No. Can, can something snatch you away from the love of God? No. But can you absolutely destroy the life that you have in the meantime? Yes. And how many bad examples have we watched over the past decades of that very thing happening? Time would not fail us and would destroy our spirit if we all went around the room and told the stories of people we know, our brothers and sisters, believers in Christ, who have made terrible choices to follow their flesh and destroyed everything. Who have wrecked their marriages, wrecked their families, wrecked their churches, wrecked their ministries, wrecked their witness, wrecked their health, wrecked everything. When you let the Hulk run amok, it doesn't end well. When you do not care about what those desires do, it will destroy what you love. That is what sin does. The wages of sin is death. And simply because we have been saved from hell and we have eternal life does not mean that the enemy cannot still cause you incredible amounts of pain in the meantime. Look at verse six again. It says the life in the spirit though is life and peace. What the Lord is trying to lead you into is life and peace. Look, Jesus is no grim ascetic. He's no monk living out in the desert. 
He says, no, I came to give you life and you might have it more abundantly when we walk in the spirit. He does not promise untold prosperity in this world, but he does say you get life, life at the deepest level, life that can't be taken away from you and peace, peace with God and even peace with yourself. This is what life is like walking in the spirit. When I choose to walk in the, in the flesh, I am forfeiting life and peace. I get not life, I get death. And I don't get peace, I get anxiety. I get fear, I get anger, and everything else that goes along with it. We forfeit these things when we walk in the flesh. Look at verse seven. The life of the flesh is hostile to God. It's hostile. We can't walk in fellowship with the Lord and be living in our flesh. We are hostile to God. Verse eight, so much so I cannot please God. Please do not delude yourself into thinking that we can walk with the Lord and that everything is fine when we are consciously and willingly indulging the flesh. We cannot. We find ourselves displeasing to the Lord. You can't have it both ways. And so for us as believers, we have to make a conscious choice that says that I am not going to live in the flesh. Instead, I'm going to live in the spirit, which gives us the thing that we need to do. Look at Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. Here's how we are to respond to the flesh. Put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly in you. Sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. How do we respond to the flesh? We kill it. That's the command of Scripture. We don't coddle it. We don't make room for it. We, we don't encourage it. You kill it. Here, put that back there for a second. It says, put to death whatever is earthly, right, it's fleshly, in you. Remember, he's talking to believers here. He says, this is in you, believer, and here's what you and I are to do. We are to put this to death. We must fight against the flesh, and we have the power through the Holy Spirit, not through our own willpower, but by the Holy Spirit, you can put these things to death, and we are called to, not just one of these things, but all of these things, which is why we're calling this series The Repenters. Because for us as believers, we ought to be people who are constantly repenting. Repentance isn't something simply for when you get saved. It's something that we constantly do. Not to keep our salvation, not to gain our salvation, but because we are saved, we ought to be constantly repenting. So the turning away from the flesh, instead turning towards the spirit that we might walk in him. And this is something that people have known for centuries. In fact, Martin Luther, when he nailed his 95 theses to the Wittenberg door in Germany, kicking off the Protestant Reformation, out of all 95 theses, here was the first theses. This is the first thing on the list that he nailed on that door. Here's what it said. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he meant that the entire life of believers should be one of repentance. The entire life of a believer. Because we're saved, I ought to constantly be repenting. Why? So that I can grow in holiness. So I can live in step with the Spirit. I can honor and glorify the Lord. We ought to constantly be repenting. Guys, if you and I want to see the renewal we've all been praying for, it starts with our repentance. If we want to see the revival that we've all been praying for. It's not gonna start out there in the world. It will start here in us when we choose to become a people who are characterized by consistent repentance. That we recognize that we're all struggling. 
We all have these temptations and we ought all to be growing. We ought all to be repenting. And this is where the anger is going to come in. I told you that I was going to make you angry. And you say, well, I'm not angry yet. I mean, it's been fine. It was interesting and all, but I'm not angry yet. Hang on. (laughs) When was the last time you told yourself no? Think about it. When was the last time you told yourself no? You cannot do it. I have a small child. If you have a child, you know what happens when you tell a small child no. You see it on their face. They get angry. They stomp their feet. They are frustrated. They're disappointed. You see it on them. We are adults. We learn to hide it. What happens when you tell yourself no? You say, I tell myself no all the time. Really? Have you ever had this experience where you decided to do something and then you realized two months later you never did it? You remember that time when you were going to lose weight? You remember that time you were going to eat better? You remember the time you said, I'm going to work out more? Remember the time you, you were going to spend less? You were going to make a budget? You were going to stick to the budget? You were actually going to do these things? We, we, and, we all, and, and your flesh said, on board. This sounds like a great idea. Let's do that. It's great. But when it finally came time to actually doing it, there was always an excuse. Well, you can't do that today. I mean, look, I mean, and certainly not in this instance. I mean, you can't. We'll do it next week. All right? Next week, I promise we'll start. We'll start eating better. But you've got to eat this now. I mean, you can't miss it on this. I mean, you've got to have that. And look, you've got to buy this. I mean, you can't go buy on that. I mean, this is important. This is necessary. It's not a want. It's a need. You have to have this. You've got to spend that money. Next year, we'll do that. Okay? Later on, when it's a better situation, I promise we'll do that. We're going to get there. But you can't do that right now. And you find that two months, three months, 10 years goes by, and you haven't done anything. That's your flesh. And when you finally tell it no and you mean it, the anger will come right up to the surface, will it not? When you finally hit the anger point, that's when you know you've really kind of met the flesh in you. When you begin to to say to yourself, hey, the way that you spend money, this is actually extravagant and you need to stop it. You need to spend less when you go to Target. Now, hang on. Who in the world are you to tell me how I need to spend my money at Target? Hang on. Hey, those things you've been watching, yeah, it's full of depravity and it is destroying your soul. And you need to stop watching these things or listening to this or reading this because you think you're okay and it's not affecting you, but it is, and you just need to stop. Hold up. I am a grown man. You do not tell me what I cannot read or cannot read. You do not do that. Hey, listen, these things that you say and yet you post... Okay, that's actually full of anger and wrath and malice and slander. And you need to stop. You literally need to stop talking like this. This is my personality. This is what I do. Then your personality is broken. Well, you better stop right now. We're about to have words here. You angry yet? Welcome to the flesh. Because when the Lord finally speaks to us and says, hey, listen, this is not okay. There's going to have to be change. Your flesh will rise up and say no right back at you. It is a war. And look, the reason we have a problem with this is because you and I live in a culture that does not know what to do with the word no. Our entire culture is built on the idea that if you have a desire, then it must be good. Think about what our culture says. We live in a world that says You must do what you want to do. We are made. We have based our entire country on life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I should not restrict myself. I should be free in all things. And to restrict myself will be the worst thing in the universe. 
I was watching Disney Plus with my daughter the other day. I watch princess movies. This is my life. And I'm sitting there watching this cartoon mom tell a cartoon daughter, but most importantly, be true to yourself. Question, which self? Because the world says it's just yourself, and if you've got desires, that must be you. Do you not know that yourself sometimes has desires that are evil and that should not be obeyed? Or how about this? You need to follow your heart. Just follow your heart and you'll be fine. Follow your heart. Question, which heart? Which heart? Because the assumption of our culture is that you are inherently good and that any desire that you have, any feeling that you have, must never be contramanded. Instead, it ought to be encouraged. It will not brook the idea that maybe there's something wrong in our flesh. That we need to actually tell ourselves, no, that this desire is not okay. Our culture will not hear it. Our culture will tell you, no, you need to do whatever you want. Don't ever let anybody tell you that you're wrong. Don't let anybody tell you that you cannot do that very thing. This idea actually comes from Sigmund Freud. Sigmund Freud, psychologist, psychoanalyst back in the early 20th century, he had this idea that all neuroses in life come from sexual repression. That because you actually repress sexual desires, this is producing all the neuroses in our culture, in yourself. It all comes from saying no to yourself. Now, there's problems with that. Number one, Sigmund Freud never lived that way. Very interesting. He was fiercely monogamous his entire life. So he said all this other stuff. He never actually lived any of it out. Secondly, no psychoanalyst worth their salt agrees with Freud today. The entire profession has abandoned him. Go ask your counselor. Nobody believes in Freud anymore. You know who did? Our entire culture. Who picked up the idea and says, oh no, I like that. Whatever feeling I have must be okay. Whatever desire I have must be okay because it's coming from me. Therefore, it must be right. With no understanding that you and I have a flesh that at times has desires, lusts, passions that are actually not good for us, that actually will lead to death and our own destruction. They should not be encouraged and said they ought to be killed so that you and I can find life and peace that comes through Jesus Christ. It is the only way we are going to find life and peace. And so over the course of the series, we're gonna jump into this fight. We're gonna learn what it looks like. We're gonna learn tools that, through the Holy Spirit that can actually help us see transformation that can help us. We're all gonna be fighting this for the rest of our life. We're gonna learn how to help one another in this task. We're gonna talk about the specifics of what this actually looks like in real time. But to begin, there just comes a question. Are you willing to fight the flesh? Not just the world, not just the devil, but are we willing to fight our very flesh? And we're gonna spend really a couple months dealing with that, which is why a lot of you won't show up next week. <laughs> to which I say, bye. <laughs> Enjoy. And when your life falls apart because the Hulk destroyed everything, we'll still be here. And you can come back. But it'd be really a whole lot better if you didn't spend the next two months of your life letting your flesh run amok? And what if we all together helped one another, prayed for one another, encouraged one another, chose the spirit over the flesh and found the life and the peace that Jesus Christ has made us for? What if we became the repenters? You see, next Sunday, your flesh is gonna find reasons not to be here. Oh, you can't go two weeks in a row. Who does that anymore? 
no, we'll stay home another week. It'll be fine. I mean, I think we're going to get back, like, what, 2024, 2025? I think it'll be safe then. You can come back to church. Um, now, I mean, we got things to do. I mean, don't we have to visit, like, the in-laws? We haven't seen them in 10 years, but we need to go, right? We should go. Let's go see them. You will, your flesh will find a reason not to be here next week and the week after and the week after. What if you told your flesh, no, I want to worship with the people of God. I want to grow in faith. I want to find the life and the peace, not the death of the flesh that Jesus Christ has set me free for. I want to walk in the spirit. And what if we watch the Lord start breaking the shackles of sin off of us so that we might see revival? As we head towards Easter, what if that became our journey? So this week, could I just ask you to pray a simple prayer? Ask the Lord to show you your flesh. To show you where the flesh is tempting you. There are certain things you don't wrestle with. All of our struggles are different. But I wonder if you could ask the Lord to show you where you struggle the most. And it might surprise you. It might not be the thing you're thinking of. But would you ask the Lord to show you where this fight is so that he can bring you freedom.